And shuls are very, very difficult to restructure. It's about people, it's about lives, it's about people's involvement. At the end of the day, most rabbis are very limited from an entrepreneurial perspective. So my greatest weakness is my greatest strength. I could reimagine how does a shoe look like in the 21st century in a great urban community like Manhattan. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In episode 117, I spoke to Rabbi David Fine, who discussed many of the challenges faced by rabbis, specifically in Israel. Some listeners requested that I speak to an American rabbi, who would obviously face very different issues. So today I speak with Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt of the Altnoy Shul in Manhattan. Rabbi Goldschmidt spent 10 years at the Park East Synagogue, after which, in a story that was widely reported in the press, the senior rabbi there effectively pushed him out. That story is already well known. But Rabbi Goldschmidt does have a unique perspective that comes from starting a new shul in Manhattan and trying to cater to a population that may be looking for new forms of Jewish engagement. But as you'll see in my interview, my real interest in speaking to Rabbi Goldschmidt is less in the challenges he faces as a shul rabbi, and specifically as a shul rabbi in a new synagogue, and more in the possibility of reinventing the very idea of the synagogue and even the idea of community in the Orthodox world. So many people feel disenfranchised from our existing institutions, and Rabbi Goldschmidt himself knows what it means for a venerable existing synagogue to feel threatened by you. I wanted to know how he's using his unusual opportunity to create his new shul in order to do things differently, to bring more people in who might normally look elsewhere for their spiritual nourishment. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing how Rabbi Goldschmidt responded to my questions. Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt is the rabbi of the Altnoy Shul in Manhattan's Upper East Side. Born in Jerusalem and raised in Moscow, Rabbi Goldschmidt studied in Bnei Brak's Ponovitz Yeshiva, Yerushalayim's Chevron Yeshiva, and continued his postgraduate studies at Beit Midrash Kavoha in Lakewood, New Jersey, and Yeshivas Or Ruvain in Suffern, New York. He served Manhattan's Jewish community at Park East Synagogue for the past decade. Rabbi Goldschmidt's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Haaretz, Mishpacha, Kikar Shabbat, Khan TV, the Headlines Podcast, and The Forward, among others. Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Scott, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. About eight months ago, you were in the news because you left your old job as assistant rabbi at the Park East Synagogue in Manhattan, and soon after, you opened a new shul, the Altnoy Shul, where you now serve as the rabbi. I want to ask as an opening question, Rabbi Goldschmidt, why did you feel the need to open something new? What was missing in other synagogues in the area such that your congregants came to your shul specifically, aside from obviously the pleasure and honor of having Rabbi Goldschmidt as the rabbi? You know, that's a great question. What necessitated opening another shul? Uh, you know, you know the, the first reason there's a rabbi who wants, to, who wants to preach more than the child wants to nurse, the mother wants to feed the child. So, uh, so that's, uh, you know, primarily um, just the most honest reason from a personal perspective. I chose to become a rabbi because my two greatest passions in life for people and Judaism. And being a rabbi allows me to do both. But specifically, um, if you'd ask the question, why, uh, why did I choose to remain in the city and not look for a pulpit elsewhere and start a synagogue, uh, which uh, in Manhattan could be, it's anywhere in the spectrum between crazy or suicidal, um, is first of all, uh, I was very grateful to have many people who encouraged me and supported me, uh, without whom I would not be uh, where I am today. That's number one. And I'll be eternally grateful to them. Uh, but the truth is, um, Manhattan is like, I mean, just the amount of Jews who live here or pass through here is beyond comprehension. I mean, you speak about, you know, out-of-town communities or suburban communities and a few hundred uh, families living within the 25-minute walking distance to your shul, and you're pretty much limited to that. On the Upper East Side, based on the UJA, most recent, I think, uh, census, I think they estimate 75,000 people living just on the Upper East Side, 75,000 Jews. Um, and that doesn't include Midtown East, that doesn't include Hudson Yards, it doesn't include Murray Hill. Um, I mean, it's just enormous amounts, and, and you get to meet the most fascinating, interesting uh, Jews from all over the world. 
you know, I myself, I'm, I'm going through a learning process that, you know, uh, I'm a young rabbi, but as my father said, when he was a young rabbi, it's a, a, you know, it's a problem that will be solved with time, but I'm taking the opportunity to learn. So, you know, number one, number one is, is, um, is the dynamic of, of synagogues in Manhattan. You have to understand, you know, every, every community, there's always, you know, what they call the low hanging fruit. The easy, you know, Manhattan is all about, it's, a, it's Wall Street, it's about business. So, uh, so what is the conversion rate, okay? Um, who is the easiest clientele? Every business. When you start a business, who's your easiest client? Who's the one that's happiest to pay and easiest to please? Um, and the truth is in Manhattan synagogues, uh, the most beloved on the large congregations, there's no one better than the empty nester. The empty nester, they lived in Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey. The youngest kid just moved out of the house. They, they're downsizing. They sold their home in, uh, in White Plains or, uh, or Merrick uh, or Roslyn or wherever they, they lived. Uh, they're moving into the board and apartment in the city. Uh, they haven't uh, gone to a Broadway show in 30 years. They're exhausted. Uh, they're flush with time. They're flush with cash. Uh, they have few expenses. Uh, they don't need a children's program for their kids. They don't need babysitting for their uh, newborns. They don't need a, a programming for teens, for teenagers. And they're ready. You know, the joke is you, you make a pottery class at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. They'll show up. They'll be happy and they won't complain. In a way, uh, those are the easiest to please and uh, easiest to engage. Um, and I would say it is very tempting for synagogues not to focus on catering for them. Because the truth is, and by the way, most of them are wonderful people, some of my best friends and greatest, uh, and some of, some of my great supporters also uh, are empty nesters uh, from that background. But on the other hand, Manhattan has an underlying fascinating community. You, you know, I think it's safe to say that most ambitious Jews from all over the world pass through Manhattan for some point of their life. Uh, some spend a year, some spend three, five years, some spend seven to nine, some spend their 12 years, and some, some remain forever. There's a huge transient community. President Isaac Herzog spent a few years on the Upper East Side. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett spent a few years on the Upper East Side. People pass through Manhattan. And they're a difficult crowd. It's a very difficult crowd. First of all, they're extremely diverse. They have absolutely no time. Um, they usually are very tight in cash at that point. They're just starting up their careers. They're paying in exorbitantly high rents. Um, they're debating every year whether to stay in the city or to move out to the suburbs. Committing to a community is not uh, the easiest or, or, or uh, simplest decision they can make. But the truth is the years they spend in Manhattan are some of the most important years of their lives. These are the years they usually decide who they marry. These are the years uh, they get their first job, the years they get their first big promotion, the years they complete their higher education. These are the years uh, they have their first child. These are the years they choose the first school for their child. So by the time they're 35 and they move out to the suburbs, uh, you have a pretty formed individual, pretty formed family. So if you're thinking from a perspective of institution, should we invest in this community? They're going to be gone in a few years. They may not stay. They're very difficult to please. They don't have any time. Uh, they have kids. They need programming. They need extra attention. Uh, it may not be the smartest thing to do. Um, I think, but if we think if we're concerned about the future of the Jewish people, I think that is the number one concern. Then let me ask you, Rabbi Goldschmidt, though, once again, along those lines, it all sounds very interesting, the opportunity to meet fascinating people, people really at an important stage in their lives. What was missing in other shuls that people would look at the Altnoy shul, your shul, and say, here is something which I can't get anywhere else, given what you said, there are so many Jews, so many Orthodox Jews in the Upper East Side. There's so many opportunities for Jewish engagement in other institutions. What would they find in your shul that they, again, without putting down anybody else, what would be unique about your shul that they might not find in other places? Scott, I just want to make it clear. There are a lot of great shuls in Manhattan doing a lot of great work. Uh, no shul could do everything for everyone. Um, I cannot do everything for everyone. Just the most honest example, you know, and I have to be fair about it. Um, I don't have a daily minion yet. I'm just Friday night, Shabbos morning, Shabbos mincha. Um, to operate a daily minion is a real headache for, for many, many shuls. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. Um, so at this point, 
hopefully we will have a daily minyan, this point of not focusing on it. So I just want to make it clear, there are a lot of great communities, a lot of great shuls, focusing on a lot of great issues. You know, when I started the shul, I was concerned I wanted to do what all the other shuls were doing. And then I told to myself, I actually have the privilege of actually doing what all the other shuls are not doing. So instead of trying to imitate other synagogues, try to let me lean into what is missing. Um, and what's that? So I have the privilege uh, that most other rabbis do not. Most rabbis join congregations. They're formed congregations. They're set in their ways. Most of the, many of them in Manhattan, many of them were structured in the 19th century. So again, whatever way it's structured, the men's club, the sisterhood, this is the way it is. You're not closing down a sisterhood because, uh, because you want to you know, restructure it. Um, and shuls are very, very difficult to restructure. It's about people. It's about lives. It's about people's involvement. At the end of the day, most rabbis are very limited from an entrepreneurial perspective. So my greatest weakness is my greatest strength. I, I could reimagine how does a shoe look like in the 21st century in a great urban community like Manhattan? Um, so that's a great privilege I have. And, you know, I look at it as an incredible opportunity that Hashem has given me and my wife. I'm fascinated by that idea, the idea of reimagining the shul. I want to know why that would be necessary and what that means to you. It's very important. At the end of the day, we're all products of our society. We're products of our backgrounds. We're products of the, of the world we live in. You know, let, let, let's just think about the way, just let's just think about the architecture for a second, okay? The most beautiful schools in the world were built around the same decades. You go to Rome, go to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and even New York, the last decades of the 19th century. After emancipation, after Jews were able to leave the ghetto, that's when the synagogues in Rome and Paris, the Victoire, these gorgeous synagogues, are all coming up around the same time. Why were those synagogues built the way they were? The Jewish people for 2,000 years were prohibited from building gorgeous synagogues. We were stuck with small wooden shacks in towns in Eastern Europe. And even those who lived in the big cities did not have permission to build great uh, structures. When finally Jews were permitted to build at the same, maybe not the same height as the, as the nearby churches in town, but they're able to be grand. Um, it was the first opportunity where people are able to say, you know, show a sign of opulence, of strength, uh, of excitement. Um, we could do it too. We could do it too. And we've built these gorgeous cathedrals, some looking more like uh, churches uh, than the historic synagogues we had, because mm -hmm. it came to compensate for 2,000 years we couldn't do it. It came to show, uh, look where, look what we've done. It, it's like, you know, the the difference between the Nuova Rish and the, uh, the old money. You know, you, you made it big. You buy the yacht, you buy the plane, you got you to gotta show all your friends I've made it in life, you know? And, and that's basically what happened. In, in my mind, the message was not to the Jewish community. The message was to the world, signaling to the world. Look at us, the Jewish people, which was an incredible message. And now we have these huge structures, synagogues that could hold 1,000 to 1,500 people that are empty, that are not full, that do not have a thousand people besides for three, maybe five, maybe six, maybe 10 days a year. These structures are extremely expensive to maintain. Many of them are becoming landmark uh, buildings. Then you have to think, how do you, uh, you know, renovate them? How do you uh, uh, keep them going? You need complete maintenance staff and operations managers just to sustain it, just to make sure it's, it's possible to use. Then you have to think, do we use it as a museum part-time? Uh, do we rent it out for events? Then you get into the event rental business. In many ways, these huge structures force communities to be focused on hardware. And my line is that I have the privilege of focusing on software. Okay, well, what's an example? There are many shuls that are not these ancient, venerable buildings, or even not so ancient, but beautiful buildings. Most shuls in suburbs, for example, are much more recent. They may be beautiful, they may not be beautiful, but it's not a matter of reimagining the hardware, it's imagining of reimagining the software, as you put it. So what would that mean? What sorts of changes would you implement, obviously staying within the bounds of halacha? So, okay, you mentioned suburban. I think suburban is a little bit different. It has an opposite problem than city synagogues. Let me explain. Suburban synagogues over the pandemic um, have had huge competition with backyard minyanim. 
Um, people just getting a couple, 15 people together. There are more Sifri Torah available than ever before. By the way, the price of Sifri Torah went up considerably. Uh, there's enormous amount of demand. Um, and, and people have the comfort. Uh, they sit down, they get some herring, get a couple of friends, and they have a quick davening. And shuls uh, have been breaking their heads how to bring people back uh, to the old school uh, community. Um, how do you compete with the convenience, the comfort, the leisure of the back, the backyard, the indoor, the basement, minyanim, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's question number one. The city is the opposite. In the city, in a way, communities have a monopoly because apartments are so small, uh, no one can make a backyard minion. So basically, mm -hmm, right. uh, you, you have a built-in advantage. So it's very, very different. Again, each community is unique. I could speak about a little bit of what I'm familiar with. Um, and, um, you know, God willing, as... As time passes by, I'll gain wisdom and learn more and perhaps perfect it as well. Uh, but a few points. I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, communities have to be uh, participatory communities. Um, it's not just people observing uh, what's happening on the pulpit, uh, but people having active and a stake in their communities. I think that is essential. So, for example, I'll just give you just a small point um, we've been able to implement in our communities. It's nice that the rabbi gives a Dvar Torah every single week. At the end of the day, you know, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to tell Rabbanan, if you want to continue growing as Tamide Chachamim, as, as rabbis, teach subjects you don't know anything about. Uh, so basically, uh, you know, if you have never learned Mishlei, start teaching Mishlei. You know, go out of your comfort zone. Because in a way, the best way to learn is to teach. But that holds true for every single Jew. Every Jew has a responsibility to teach. You do not have, need smicha to teach Torah. Every single Jew is commanded to learn and to teach. And we have different members sharing the Torah, introducing the parsha. Uh, just a three-minute Dvar Torah. You know, different members, some are more knowledgeable, some are less. Uh, some prepare on their own, some ask me for help. But they get a chance to speak in front of the community. They have an obligation uh, to prepare Dvar Torah and share it with the community. It's not that long that if it's a miss, it's good. the whole shul is disappointed. Um, but people enjoy it. They hear, hi, my name is so-and-so. My name is Scott Khan. I'm living in Ramat Chemish, and it's a privilege to share my thoughts of Torah today in Parshat Balotcha. That's very interesting. Of course, someone might argue, although I think I know how you would explain this. You already said it's not that long. If it's a miss, it's not the biggest problem. But someone might say, it's really nice that Rabbi Goldschmidt wants to involve members of the congregation, but I'm here to listen to him. I'm not interested in listening to Plony Almoni who's sitting in the pews. I want to listen to the rabbi who actually knows more. It's a bit of a balance in that sense. So it's interesting you said people come to hear me. I, I officiated a wedding in Palo Alto a couple of weeks ago. This venture capitalist, very successful person, walks over to me. Now, usually the rabbis are running after the VC guys. For some reason, he cornered me and he's like, Rabbi Goldschmidt, I've been following your story for months. You know, he's just fascinated by the whole story. Um, you know, I always blush a little bit. I, I don't know how to respond. He tells me, Rabbi Goldschmidt, I want to tell you one thing. Uh, you know, I've heard you've had a decent success. People are not coming for your sermon, Rabbi Goldschmidt. I just want to let you know. They're not coming even for the nice kiddush. People are coming because they want hope. Are you giving them hope? And the entire flight back from San Francisco to New York, it was like ringing in my head. And essentially, you got to be honest, I, I do not think it is my sermons. Um, I, I, think, I think there's something at this point of time that made people want to, uh, want to participate in this endeavor. When you talk about participation, that does lead to an interesting question in terms of the participation of women. Once again, we're talking about an Orthodox community over here. This is a podcast which is called The Orthodox Conundrum. I'm not trying to suggest any changes that would be outside of halacha, but how do you balance that that issue where, on the one hand, you want to have as much participation as possible, but on the other hand, for a lot of people, participation of women means that they can see over the mechitza rather than having a curtain that goes all the way up. What do you do in order to make female congregants feel that they have that participatory quality, that they have hope as well, perhaps I could say? So actually, that is a key point. And because I knew you were going to ask me that question, I didn't bother to respond it on my own. Uh, you know, there's certain questions you just know. It's like, you know, when you take the DMV driving test, they'll ask you how much alcohol you're allowed to take before you drive. So as, a, as an Orthodox rabbi, you could be assured on any podcast you go, they'll ask you about women's issues. So thank you for bringing it up. Without question, without question, specifically for modern Orthodoxy, meaning specifically for any communities 
uh, who are basically living not in a more uh, secluded, closed environment where they create their own cultural realities, but communities that live within the realities of today's Western civilization, okay? If modern Orthodox communities will not figure out a way to meaningfully engage women in communal life, in Torah, in tefillah, in all aspects of being Jewish, we are headed to a very, 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 uh, you know, I don't like being pessimistic, but this is the single most important question. I can't tell you how many people I know who are like extremely engaged and their wives are not engaged at all. They do not feel comfortable uh, in Orthodox rules. So that's without question an extremely important subject. And again, this is not a halachic issue. Every Orthodox community needs visible and vocal and existing female role models for women, for daughters, teenagers, students, adults, etc. You cannot avoid that. It's interesting, you know, the modern Rebetzin was the Rebetzin that was, you know, independent, that had her own career, that was not involved in community, in community life. The way we need to go, we need very active Rebetzins. You need very powerful Rebetzins. I could tell you, for sure, without question, one of the greatest success of Chabad movement that is not discussed enough is the full participation of their shluchot. There's the shaliach and then there's the shlucha. Um, so in a way, many Chabad houses are more egalitarian than modern Orthodox communities because they have a visible leader who's female at the helm of the congregation. They happen to be married to each other, uh, but, but it's a partnership. Without question, my greatest strength and asset is my wife, Avital. It's 50% of the population, and in Orthodox Judaism, the 50% that matters to make the next generation Jewish are women. So this is, this is key. Well, I mean, I think that's great, but I have a couple questions about that. The first one is, I don't know how it works in your shul. I don't know how it works in a Chabad house. Presumably, they raise their money so they manage it the way they want. But in most shuls, despite the fact that they're hiring a rabbi, they expect perhaps the rabbis in two do a big job as well, and she's not necessarily being paid for that. Part of the problem is, the way you're describing it, having female role models in every Orthodox shul, with which I certainly agree, but they're only giving one salary in most cases. Most shuls can't afford to pay two full-time role models or two full-time members of a rabbinic couple. So basically, it sounds like, even though, again, I'm saying I think what you're saying is a good thing, but you're asking for one person to get paid and the other person to do work for free, and if she's really a role model and doing her job properly then she can't get another job in the interim. I, I'm, how does that work? Uh, Scott, read my lips. Modern Orthodox synagogues should start paying rabbis and salaries. 100%. They should be paid. And not just rabbis, bring in women and female speakers. There should be budgets for it. Um, there should be sponsorships for it without question. It, you know, it becomes a question, does, is it a part-time salary? Is it a full-time salary? Uh, does the rabbis want to do something else uh, as well? Uh, that's that could be an individual question, but communities have to figure out they have to have female role models. And, and by the way, there's nothing. The truth is, there's nothing really revolutionary about it. Rebbe and Esther Youngrise taught more Torah to more people than uh, dozens of uh, female, you know, rabbis from other denominations. We had female role models and teachers throughout the ages. Whether they taught only teenagers or adults or only women or both women and men. Uh, you know, uh, you know, they're they're different. They're different models for it. The focus, in my my perspective, sh- uh, should shift from titles and more to respect vis-a-vis uh, paying salaries for rebbitzins. And let me just say one more point, which I'm sure you agree with. And the pay scale should obviously be the same if they're doing the same work. Very often, even places that do pay women, I've heard too often to count, they're paying female scholars at a lower wage scale than they're paying male scholars. And that's one of the reasons that titles sometimes do matter, because if a man is a rabbi and the woman is Mrs., therefore, well, she doesn't have the title. I'm not arguing the point right now. I'm sure. not talking no, no, about no. smicha for women, but I'm talking about pay. You know, it's, it's very, you know, it's very interesting. People are more, you know, Western society is very, uh, is very generous when it comes to titles, when it comes to pronouns. Um, when it comes to the bottom line, they're much less generous. Uh, they're ready to call you any pronoun you want. You want. That's how liberal we are. But we're not liberal enough to give women a uh, paid leave guaranteed for bearing a child. And we're not that liberal. So we should be truly liberal. You know, I'll just share with you a, a, a joke. There's a, a, a friend of mine who's a rabbi. He told me his father was a rabbi in Mexico. And, uh, you know, he took a position and 
you know, they're talking to him about all the great things that they're going to, you know, Rabbi, you sit up front at the, at the helm of the pulpit, and we can't start chakras until you walk in. And every single event starts with you walking in, and the, the whole community will rise when you walk in. Then the rabbi is noticing that they're not telling him anything about compensation. So he says, now I understand pshat, I understand the, the meaning. In Birkat Amazon, we say, May the merciful sustain us with dignity. Uh, so the simple meaning is, may we get a respectable living. But he said, no, no, no. Some people want to sustain you with covet. You know, instead of paying you food, they go, oh, you're going to give you this title, we'll give you that title, uh, but we're not, going to, we're not going to give you actually bread to eat. Uh, so yes, now, listen, without question, without question, this is, uh, this is a struggle. The moment something becomes a priority, um, uh, people find a solution for it. It has to become a priority. And alongside that, and I'm sorry to talk about this a little bit more, I just think it's a very important topic. You mentioned the idea of female role models. Is there anything else that you think that women can do in the modern Orthodox shul that would, again, be within the bounds of halacha, but at the same time allow women to feel less disenfranchised? I'll even suggest something. I'm not saying this is a good idea or a bad idea, but something which I have heard some people say. Some people say, look, the synagogue as it is now is fundamentally a male institution. And to change that into something which is going to both be halachic and allow women to participate, women will always be second-class citizens, no matter how much they want to participate or we want them to participate. If we're following halacha, they can't be part of a minion, they can't be shleich zibor, etc. In that situation, perhaps, or given that situation, perhaps it's better that we create a new institution that would be a place where women would be the dominant gender. I don't know what that would look like. I'm not even saying I have any idea what it would mean, Scott. But some people are uh, saying that could even replace the shul for women. So, okay, so Scott, here's here's a very interesting point, and with your permission, let me go back to architecture for a second. The 19th yes. century cathedrals, synagogues were built for a community where women were not expected to go to the synagogue, and frankly, many were not interested in going too often to the synagogue. They got the second floor of the gallery. Um, I remember, I remember, my wife told me. Um, she asked me once, have I ever sat upstairs in the women's gallery? Have I, she said, Benji, have you ever sat in there uh, for an hour? She says, no. She says, I want you to go upstairs and sit there for an hour and tell me how you feel. Went upstairs, it was midday, the, you know, the shoe lights were closed. You know, I turned the small lights just so I could see what's going on. And I had that feeling for a second. So, for example, you know, Lincoln Square that's built, that's modern day, you know, it's already the architecture is built different. Men and women are on the mm -hmm. same are on the same platform to begin with. There's a great line I heard from another friend of mine. He says, "You know, we need to stop thinking of synagogues like Catholics. We need to decatholicize uh, our communities." Again, the moment it's sanctuary based, uh, we're in trouble. The moment it's community and home based, we're we're doing okay. You know, you know what else is interesting, Scott? The more religious the community. Usually, uh, the simpler the synagogue is. You know, synagogues in Bar Park are a question of convenience. You know, what's the shul on your block that it's during the time frame when you wake up on Shabbos morning that is comfortable to go to where you have some friends. Um, it's more like a gym where you do exercise for half an hour and you move on with your day. It is not a Broadway show. It is a gym where you do your exercise, you, you burn the amount of calories that you need for the day, and then you move on. And that has to do with how our buildings are built and what is at the center of attention um, and what is the focus of our structure. I think it does have a lot to do with it. We have to reimagine it. Uh, what is a Beit Midrash? What is a community center? It's interesting. People prefer, you know, especially in the city, people prefer Torah classes in people's homes rather than the synagogue. You get to go to someone's home. You get to meet someone. You know, in the suburbs, people often go to each other's homes. In the city, it's Achnasat Rahim has uh, more of a challenge because there's much less space, uh, but it's it's really an opportunity to bond. Uh, so you have to shift. You have to shift the thinking. We have to decatholicize uh, our thinking uh, in order to do uh, major progress here. Okay, now let's move on to a different topic. I'm curious about your non-Shomer Shabbat congregants, people who come to shul who are not classically orthodox. And I'm wondering, it doesn't have to be in the Alt-Noy shul, just in general, 
how do we bring people in? How do we make them feel like they're a part of our shuls, even if they may not classically be part of the Orthodox community in the larger sense? And the reason I'm asking you this specifically, Rabbi Goldschmidt, is I think, if I understand correctly, you do have some people who come to your shul who are not in the classic Orthodox mold. Is that correct? 100%. And I'm very proud of it. Listen, you know, every community has to be in, in doing outreach today. Any community, especially any urban community. An urban community that does not do outreach, uh, you know, in my mind, is about Tashkis. Uh, it has to be part of the DNA. Uh, it has to be part of the DNA of any community. A few things. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, you have communities, and then you have outreach organizations. So you have people who specialize in building community. We do minion. We do uh, unveilings. We do funerals. We do brises. And then you have an organization that focuses on outreach. So, for example, you know, and by the way, this is, uh, this is as praise. You have a great community like the Jewish Center on the Upper West Side who has MJ running their outreach division within their building. I don't know what exactly the arrangement is between them, whether it's a rental, or with, but, but it's, it's basically it's two separate entities working within one. The more we integrate the two, the better we will be. Meaning uh, this is something we have, every community has to do in-house. Uh, you know, you need, sometimes you need, an, sometimes you have a law firm doing uh, the legal work for you. Sometimes it's so significant that you need in-house counsel. Um, outreach should be in-house counsel for every single org- a, a, a Jewish institution. Meaning it's not, it's not someone brought out, you know, some energetic college rabbi that comes in and does a rah-rah Shabbaton. Our community should be designed with outreach in mind. Uh, that- what does outreach mean to you, though? What is outreach? So, so the truth is, um, again, people speak about, uh, you know, Chabad does incredible, you know, you can't speak about outreach without mentioning Chabad. Um, uh, but it's interesting, uh, you know, outreach, uh, you know, make it a scale from one to 10, okay? One is someone who's completely disengaged. 10 is someone who is uh, extremely engaged in Jew- Jewish life. Um, and again, I don't want to name specific organizations or movements. Uh, some movements are very good at taking from zero to three. Some organizations are good at taking from three to six, and some take from six to eight. And then you have the closers. Uh, you know, you have the guys, who, uh, you know, who make it their life's mission to move people from Manhattan to Meisharim, and they're not satisfied until they have fourteen kids and won't pay us. And uh, and and the, and the Baal publishes uh, ten Sfarim, and he goes on a speaking tour uh, throughout the Midwest talking about his experience. Um, so so again, uh, there's a whole range of different organizations and movements. Um, have, uh, you know, some people are very good at reminding others that they're Jewish. People who don't remember it, just remind them. Uh, very often, those organizations are not going to be good taking them from three to six because they're focused on it. Um, so I think, you know, you have to be open and acknowledge that you're not going to be able to do everything for everyone. But why, why is it so key? Why is it so key for communities to have in-house outreach? And here's something I'll I think it's very important for us to, to discuss. It's very interesting when people when people go through, uh, for example, let's take pregnancy. Okay, you can do your research. Uh, people uh, in marketing, uh, especially consumer habits, uh, are changed during pregnancy. When people go through a life change, so for example, the moment you order uh, the special vitamins for a pregnant woman, uh, you'll have marketing companies that are just going to start to pitch you many different products and consumer goods. Because research shows clearly, people are creatures of habit. People are most susceptible to making any change in their life when they're going through uh, a major transformational event, like getting married, like having a child, becoming pregnant. From a spiritual perspective, it is also 100% true. You know, the few hours you have when, when you're there at someone's funeral, or when someone has a child, or when someone has a bris, a bar mitzvah, a wedding, a divorce, conversion, that's, that is when people are susceptible to change. That is when people are open to exploring new ideas. That is when people say, you know what? I should study more. I should do more. And the person, the frontline worker, you know, the boots on the ground are congregational rabbis. The better the congregational rabbi is equipped to make those, not just being an MC not just being a clerk who provides religious services, but making those moments spiritual uplifting moments 
that inspire more observance, more engagement, more study, uh, the more impact we'll have. I want to throw something out to Rabbi Goldschmidt. I'm curious if you agree with me on this, because I've spoken with other people about outreach. And one of my ideas when it comes to outreach is that we too often focus perhaps too much, you talk about closing, on that final step on, well, how firm did you get him? Did you only get him to three? Did you get him to six? Did you get him all the way up to eight or nine or 10? I certainly am all for more Jewish observance by all Jews. Of course I think that. I'm a Torah Jew. I also think that sometimes we overemphasize the end game as opposed to the process because halacha is about getting there. What do I mean? If somebody comes in to a shiur, in your shul, for example, and all he does every single week for five years is come to a shiur every week, and that's what he does, and someone were to ask, well, did he become Shomer Shabbos? Did he start putting on tefillin? Did he become frumer? And let's say the answer is no. In his case, no, he did not. Some people would say then that was a failure of outreach because you didn't capitalize on the fact that he was coming in for a shear. But I wonder if that's really a mistaken notion, perhaps, although it would be wonderful. And if he would ask me, should he put on tefillin? Yes, of course. I think every Jewish man should put on tefillin. But at the same time, this is somebody who otherwise wouldn't have gone to a shear. And guess what? For five years, weekly, he went to a shear. That itself is a form of success and in some ways might be a less condescending form of success. Do you agree with that or not? You know, the hidden question behind what you're asking, what you're really asking, in my opinion, I think, is the following. It's the very, very delicate balance. You have rabbis who don't move the needle, needle at all. You could be rabbis for decades. And they could be great. They could have a great sense of humor. They could be warm. They could be very beloved. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're not really moving the needle of observance and engagement in their communities. And then you have rabbis who demand either nothing at all or extremely little. And then you have rabbis who demand too much. When I wake up every morning is knowing what is the balance. And that is not on the Shulchan Aruch. That's the fifth part of the Shulchan Aruch for every rav. Again, how do you move the needle in a way that people will hear? Um, and again, this is you know why the myth of Tochecha is almost non-existent today, uh, because it is so difficult to do. How do you speak in a way that people listen? And I'll give you one example. So for example, you know, I'll speak about kashrut. You know, in many Manhattan synagogues, it's, it's a non-subject. You don't talk about it. Because at the end of the day, there are different levels of observance. Um, there are many people who, I would say there's an enormous amount of people who would only eat kosher at home, uh, or, or only order kosher meat from a kosher butcher. Um, but when they're on vacation, when you're in the south of France or in the south of Spain or the south of anything, um, you know, there are different rules apply. You know, the famous joke, you know, rabbi who wanted to speak about kashos, they told him, no, it's too sensitive in this community, that he wanted to speak about Shabbos, it's too sensitive. He wanted to speak about mikvah, they said it's too sensitive. He asked him, so what should I speak about? Rabbi, speak about Judaism. You know, and a few weeks ago was Parsha Shmini. You know, the go-to for every rabbi, the pulpit rabbi, to go speak about Ba'idom Aro, silence in the, in the face of, of turbulence. It's incredible. We all experience pain. Uh, we all experience loss in our lives. Uh, we all have moments of rage towards Hashem and that ability to be silent. It's the perfect go-to, sweet, soft, mushy, uh, moving, Dvar Torah. You could couple it with the story from the Holocaust and you've hit a home run. But I stood up with my community and said, you want to know what the, you know what, you want to know what the majority of this week's parsha speaks about? It speaks about kosher. And I asked them, how many of you have ever struggled with kosher? So for me, I grew up in Moscow. And as a child, today there's already, there's a significant kosher infrastructure. But when I grew up, there was nothing. I remember getting a, a chocolate. It's called the Red October. It was the Krasnik Chabot. It was the, uh, the Soviet's, uh, a gold standard, a chocolate company. Uh, and someone gave it to me and uh, my parents didn't know about it. I kept it in my, uh, in my pocket for like a few days, debating whether to eat it or not to eat it. It's like my earliest memory of gra like my moral dilemma grappling. Should I eat the chocolate? By the way, I've been overcompensating myself with sweets for the last 15 years. And that's why it's a lifelong struggle with weight. Uh, but I remember that challenge so clearly. I remember when I chose not to eat that candy, how difficult it was for me. Um, so I just turned to my community and I asked them a question. I said, I'm not judging. We all come from different backgrounds um, and we have different levels of observance and, and comfort. But I want to ask you one question. 
has it ever been easier to keep kosher than in New York City in 2022? What are we going to say to our grandmothers would bring those bloody chickens and wait in line by the rabbi to tell them if it's kosher or treif? I've been a rabbi for 11 years. I'm still waiting for the woman to walk in with the chicken into my office. Never right. happened. Um, <laughs> what will we tell our grandmothers and grandfathers who would clean the fish in the bathtub uh, in order to, to, to give us kosher food? Today, you could go to Paris and eat at top-rate restaurants. You have kosher cruises. Uh, you know, I even showed an example. In South America, there's a company called We Do Kosher. If you don't feel like going with the kosher hotel program and meet all your neighbors, you just want some quiet. They actually serve kosher food. They have a locked area with pots and pans uh, to serve in the top resorts, you know, in Punta del Este, in Uruguay, in, in, in Rio de Janeiro, in Sao Paulo, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. Um, and they bring, a mashgiach comes in, I don't remember, for a fee, 150 euros a day, 200, I don't remember what it is. Um, and serves you food at your Four Seasons or wherever you are. You don't need to even need to sit next to Moshe Chatzko. Uh, you could have your... Uh, <laughs> no, you could, um, it's beyond. It, it's never, ever been easier. You know, you have to be able to go to sleep and say, I've tried to push the needle in a meaningful way, but in a reasonable way where people want to hear. Again, this is, is, this is a very difficult subject. And your question about, you know, the closing uh, is, is a very valid, very, very valid question. Yeah, I'm going to say the other side, because I agree with what you're saying now. As a rabbi, you have obviously different obligations than a person trying to make people from who's in the Kiruv industry. It's obviously, to what degree they overlap, as you mentioned before, is an interesting question. I know that my grandfather, Lava Shalom, would always talk about how it's so important to go to Minyan early, the day after Yom Kippur, or even to go to Minyan at all, the day after Yom Kippur, because you know, otherwise, as he would put it, the Sutton will squeal on you. But I've also heard people say that you have to go to Minyan a little bit earlier the day after Yom Kippur. You know why? Because even if all you do after all of Yom Kippur is you go to Minyan a little bit earlier the next day, then the whole day was worthwhile. And frankly, when I hear that, that bothers me. I'm like, really? Really? You have one day a year to make yourself have a stronger relationship with God through Torah. The only consequence you can get is for one day you went to Minyan five minutes earlier. I think we have to have higher sights than that and try to make higher goals than simply to show up to Minyan one day earlier and then the next day you're just the way you were before that. So I know I do see both sides of it. Listen, Scott, there's, uh, you know, making small Kabbalah, mitzvah, gerars, mitzvah. It's a different. Uh, and by the way, knowing what mitzvah to introduce to someone. Um, and again, different right. people. Some people are more stimulated by intellectual pursuits. Others are by activism. You know, you got to be able to figure out what's going to be the mitzvah that's going to get this person more engaged in Yiddishkeit. You have to be able to, to be fully aware and uh, customization is extremely important here. It's not a one size fits all. Rabbi Goldschmidt, a lot of what you're saying really does reflect the name of the shul, the Altnoy shul, which I think means old, new. And we're talking about having an old, venerable, halachic, orthodox tradition, but also finding new ways of expressing it. So what does the Altnoy shul mean to you, that name? It means, listen, I gave a, the opening sermon of it. You, you know, you're asking me to say it on one foot, but really all the, all the aspects I mentioned there um, is, you know, extremely crucial to me. Um, I think authenticity is extremely important. Um, I think being unapologetic, being unapologetic. Um, I, by the way, I just, I just want to say, being a successful Orthodox rabbi is knowing how to say no with grace uh, in a way that inspires people. Uh, you know, people could get rejected from Harvard Business School and still respect Harvard Business School. Uh, they don't have to accept everyone. And actually, they're respected because they do not accept everyone. I'm not comparing, God forbid, you know, the Torah of Moshe to, to Harvard Business School. But you have to be, you have to be comfortable and uh, saying, and it gets more and more difficult. This is what we stand for. This is what we believe in, number one. Number two, growth has to be part of communities. Imagine, Scott, just imagine... You would go invest your money, walk into J.P. Morgan. You sit next to this guy who's like, you know, a very venerated investor that has the 10 degrees hating, uh, hanging on his, on his wall. And he tells you, looks at you with a straight face and I'll preserve, you'll invest a million dollars in 50 years from now, your grandchildren will get that same amount untouched, fully protected. You'll walk out the door because you want it to grow. Uh, you don't want to remain the same. We should not accept the same thing with our spiritual growth as well. We don't want to just preserve it for the next generation. We want to improve it. We want to polish it. We want to expand it. Um, that's number one. Number two, you need excitement. 
you need energy. Shimon Peres said, the speech when he accepted uh, becoming elected as president of the state of Israel. So Judaism has to be as old as the Ten Commandments and as new as the internet, which is a very powerful sentence. At the same time, we're holding the, the out, the oldest uh, piece of uh, our scripture uh, should feel completely relevant, completely new. Our liturgy is full about renewing the old. It's about renewal. It's about feeling, uh, feeling invigorated. Uh, feeling new, and um, with God's help, with my wife's help, and with the help of the wonderful community members who've given me a tremendous amount of support beyond anything I could have ever expected, we should have it. That's tremendous. I have one final question, if you don't mind, Rabbi Goldschmidt. I want to ask you, and this is a question that my wife asked me to ask you because it's something which I've heard so often is a real problem. How does a rabbi deal with financial pressure? And I don't mean the fact that Everyone in shul, obviously, rabbis are not necessarily paid nearly enough. That's a big problem in many shuls. But I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the fact that very often rabbis aren't able to speak their minds either because they are responsive to the congregation, which if the congregation doesn't like the rabbi or what he says, will say, well, we'd rather a different rabbi who isn't so demanding or whatever. Or on the other hand, if a rabbi has his own shul, sometimes he has to be responsive to the donors who are giving to his shul. How do you manage that balance? That seems like a very difficult thing to be the representative of halachic truth and hashkafic and Torah truth while at the same time recognizing that people are paying your salary. How does a rabbi do that? I don't have to speak about your case per se. I just mean in general. Okay. It's a great question. How do you rebuke the people who pay your salary? That's what it comes down to. How do you move people out of their comfort zone when people pay your salary? That is absolutely, uh, that, you know, it's a monumental question. You know, again, the word that is so key here is balance. Uh, you know, there are communities who are completely, I would say, lay-led with uh, very meek rabbis. With very, you know, where a rabbi is a rubber stamp, gives a sermon, sits in front of the room, but essentially... Uh, holds no real leadership position. Like in your joke about the rabbi who's asked to speak about Judaism. It, it, but, but again, it could be about, uh, about anything else. And then you have communities uh, where there is no lay leadership and it's just whatever the rabbi decides. In the state of Israel, you know, you're elected by a, a governing body, you get your salary from the government. You know, the chief rabbi of Netanya Herzaliya Petzachtik for Givatayim is not getting his salary paid uh, by the people who show up in a shul. I mean, Technically, with taxes, the way it works, but it's not—it's not anything that any balabas has any control over. I think that a that a balance, which is very—you know—the most difficult thing in life is balance. The Chazanish famously said, "It's much easier to learn 18 hours a day than six hours a day," and which is which is 100% true. Um, how do you create communities with an engaged, involved, and responsible lay leadership, but a community that allows for rabbi to serve in a leading position as a leader? not just as a person who's a teacher who gives classes and shows up to services and gives comfort, et cetera, et cetera, but also as a leader. You know, it's, it's not simple. Many communities, they may not say it, but they're not looking for someone who will shine too bright. Like everything else, it's a balance. On the other hand, I feel like if people have this in every, you know, there are always choices you could make. The greatest compliment I received, everyone, by the way, everyone loves compliments, especially rabbis. The greatest compliment I've received, this one says, Rabbi Goldschmidt, I appreciate what you do because you treat people, regular congregants, just the same way you treat the extremely wealthy in the community. I pray to God that I remain that way because when you need a fundraise, uh, you have that pressure. Again, some rabbis are not in, do not have the pressure of fundraising, but if you need a fundraise and you need a couple of significant funds and the recurring revenue does not cover those um, there is a temptation, you know, and it's, it's about allocating time. I pray, I pray, I pray that Hashem gives me the opportunity to serve the entire community. I pray that I do not, and again, it's not simple. I need to pray. It's not something I could expect uh, because, again, you know, speaking about the divides within the community, um, the, the decline of the middle class and the rise of the extremely wealthy um, will make it much easier to get one donation of, of 10 million than 100 donations of 5,000 or 2,000 or 10,000. Uh, so if you're speaking about how to wisely invest your time in order to be able to, to pay your bills, uh, perhaps, uh, again, I will try to be the counterintuitive and I hope Hashem gives me the ability to be able to give attention to every single person. 
you know, and I, I pray, I pray that Hashem sends me shlichim that will value that and allow me to continue to do that. But I'm not taking it for granted. Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt, this is very interesting, and I wish you much success in building your institution, Del Noy Shul, so that it should become a real venerable institution, doing the right thing, helping to promote Torah values, helping to promote halacha, and helping people who feel disenfranchised in various ways to feel that they have a home within orthodoxy, within Torah, and it sounds like from everything you're telling me that you're in the process of doing that. So thank you for what you do, and thank you for joining me today. Scott, thank you so much. When you, were, when you come to New York next time, Shabbos, what do you want? You want mafter? <laughs> I want Birkas Kohanim, but I'm not sure that's necessarily possible. Kohanim is a Kamanyantif. Looking forward. Subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeeHouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.